0: Thank you, guys. Good morning. Great to be here with you all. Excited that we might study the Word together this morning. Well, lately, I have been listening to a lot of podcasts on the internet. The internet can be a terrible place and a wonderful place at the same time. And I've seen that with podcasts lately. I've really loved podcasts. And my favorite podcast lately has been um, about American military history, mostly focusing on the American Revolution. I know that's interesting. I know that you're all enthralled with that like I am. But, but it really has. It's been interesting to me. Um, this is worn on Rae Lynn, my wife, though, over the past little while. Um, it's mostly worn on her because this has resulted in me learning little bits of trivia that I share every single day with her. And uh, after a while, it just begins to grate a bit. For instance, did you know (laughs) that it is commonly believed uh, about George Washington that he had such a strong arm that if he lived today and he knew how to throw a curveball, that he could be a major league pitcher? Or did you know that Maine was largely unmapped during the American Revolution. I think that's really interesting. Or, I'll I'll stop there. One of the things that I've learned as I've listened to this podcast though about the American Revolution is a lot of the Revolutionary War was American, uh, American soldiers and British soldiers sitting around doing nothing, waiting for commands, waiting for instruction, waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. This was particularly true of one man named Thomas Gage. Thomas Gage was the military governor of Massachusetts leading up to the Revolutionary War. Uh, He was in Boston, and so he was uh, in the area of Boston, and part of his job was to do his absolute best to control the Americans in the area. And he had a terribly difficult time doing this. Uh, The Americans sabotaged him every chance they could get. They spied on him and, and gave out his plans freely. They harassed him all the time and just generally made his life extremely difficult. It got to the point where he began to despair. He was so frustrated constantly and he was so worried that he developed significant anxiety to the point where it was said that he was almost always bordering on a panic attack. And so with this being the context, it was written of Thomas Gage, That more than anything, what Thomas Gage needed, more than anything, was orders from home telling him what to do. I find that so interesting that more than anything, so including troops, including resources, anything that you can imagine, what he needed more than anything was orders from home telling him what to do. Well, we find ourselves in a very similar situation to Thomas Gage this morning. We are in need of instructions. We need to be directed in how to live out this alien life, this Christian life. How do we move forward? Tell us how are we to go left or right or straight. We need instruction. But our situation is very much unlike Gage's in that our king, the king of kings, has graciously spoken. He has instructed. He has given us his orders, his commands. He has spoke. And so today, as we continue our study of 1 Peter, we are going to see that the king has spoken. He has revealed himself to us. He has revealed his will, his desire for us. And we'll see that especially as it relates to suffering this morning. And so... Uh, what we'll really see is, is what. We'll see the content of the king's instruction. Peter is going to instruct us in how we are to uh, respond to suffering, how we're to engage with suffering. And so that's going to be the main content of our time spent this morning. We're going to be considering the what. But then we'll have three smaller points uh, answering the question why. Why? So if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and we'll see what our instruction is. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So we'll see what our instruction is from verse 1. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good. Look at verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So chapter four begins with therefore, and therefore is pointing us back to what has come before, what has happened previously. And, and it's telling us that everything that we're getting here in chapter four flows out of what has come before. So what has come previously? Uh, verse one tells us that we are, uh, it tells us that Christ has suffered. Therefore, since Christ has suffered. So we're being oriented back to chapter three, uh, verse 18 in particular. For Christ suffered once for sins, The righteous for the unrighteous that we might live in the spirit. And so we're being pointed back to the gospel truth of the previous chapter. The gospel truth of the previous chapter. Christ suffered and died for hopelessly sinful humanity. The righteous one died for us, the unrighteous ones, that we might become the righteousness of God. So our passage flows out of the indicatives of the gospel. We can do the things that we're about to be instructed in because the reality of the gospel, because Christ suffered in the flesh. And so what are we to do in light of the gospel? First one tells us, in light of the gospel, in light of Christ's suffering in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's the command. That's the charge for us. This is the king speaking to us, giving us our instruction. But what is this saying? Uh, We are to arm ourselves. To arm ourselves, this is military terminology. There's an implication here that we as Christians are in a battle, we're in a war, and we need to be prepared for this battle. We need to put something on in order to arm ourselves. And we are to arm ourselves, according to this passage, with the mind of Christ with the mind of Christ. That's what it means to possess the same sort of thinking that Christ possessed. We're to possess the same sort of resolve that led Christ to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. Wayne Grudem, uh, teasing this out, points us back to verse 17 and says that to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ is to be convinced that it is better to do right. Better to do right in light of the gospel, because of the gospel, because we seek to honor the Lord, it is better to do right and suffer for it than to do wrong. It's better to do right and suffer for it than to do wrong. And so therefore we resolve ourselves to the mindset that it's better to suffer for living to the glory of God by speaking the truth in love, by fighting against sin, by giving self-sacrificially, by being hospitable. It is better to do these things and to suffer for them than it is to do evil. Christ submitted himself in suffering in the flesh, And now we are to arm ourselves with the same mind, this same holy vocation. We're to arm ourselves with the resolve of Christ to suffer in light of his substituting death upon the cross. The idea here reminds me of Tim Keller. Over the years, Tim Keller has commented that you can always tell when he is underprepared for a sermon because he inevitably ends up just quoting a whole bunch of C.S. Lewis. He does this because over the years he has read everything that is in print by C.S. Lewis and he's read it dozens and dozens of times. And so over the course of his life he has immersed himself with C.S. Lewis to the extent that it just flows freely. So he might be on the stage rambling on and he could just spit C.S. Lewis out. I, it seems strange to me that he would give his tell on when he's not prepared. I'm, I'm sure I have a tell for that, but I don't know that I would just say, hey guys, just so you know, this is when I'm unprepared. But Keller does that. He, he's so familiar with C.S. Lewis that over the years, people have asked him uh, what C.S. Lewis would say about this thing over here or what he would think about this thing over here. Things that C.S. Lewis did not comment on. So it might be modern things. You know, what do you think of the Cosby show? Or or what do you think about the internet? C.S. Lewis didn't talk about these things. But Keller is so familiar with C.S. Lewis that he feels confident in actually answering and saying, this is what C.S. Lewis would say about that. This is what C.S. Lewis thinks about that. How is that possible? How can Keller feel so confident that he would speak for somebody who's long been dead? Well, it's because he's so immersed in himself that he knows his mind. He sees the world in, uh, through the lens of C.S. Lewis. He is so familiar with C.S. Lewis that he can speak in these ways. He has his mind. He has armed himself with the mind of C.S. Lewis. I, this reminds me of marriage. I think we see this thing happening often in marriage. I think it certainly happened in my marriage. I'm sure those of you who have been married for longer than me have seen this happen. You have taken on the mind of your husband or your wife. This past week, I was driving home from the South Bay, and I got home, and Raylin said, "So did you bring me a donut?" What? It, I didn't say anything about donuts. Why, what are you thinking? It, how, why would Raylin ask me if I brought her a donut when I was driving home from the South Bay? Well, it's because Raylin knows that there's a Krispy Kreme on the way home, uh, the route that I take, and she knows that I lack the self. Uh, the the self-control to pull into the Krispy Kreme and actually get donuts and so she asked me and I had to tell her no I did not to my shame I on the other hand had two donuts (laughs) and a chocolate milk and it was really good well, over the years, to a degree, Ray Lynn and I have developed one another's minds because we spend so much time with one another. And we talk with each other so often that we begin to think in a similar sort of way. Well, Peter's instruction to us is that in a similar way, we are to have the mind of Christ. We're to so know Christ, to be so immersed in Christ, be so familiar with Christ that we think the way that he does and we resolve as he does. If we are taking cues from Keller, then one of the key ways that we can do this is by immersing ourselves in the Word. Keller immersed himself in C.S. Lewis. He didn't casually read C.S. Lewis. He didn't skim over the screw tape letters or read only the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No, he read everything, the hard things, the easy things. He read them over and over and over again. He memorized them. He became familiar with them. In a similar way, if we we desire to develop the mind of Christ, to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, then we must be diligent in going to the word and familiarizing ourselves with Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's like, what he requires of. Us, we need to be people of the Word, and as we do this, we will develop the mind of Christ, and therefore be the sorts of people who, like Christ, are convinced that it's better to better to do good than to and suffer for it than to do evil, and this will result in us taking seriously the commands of Christ and suffering in the flesh as we seek to obey. Shall should lead us to give self-sacrificially of our time, our money, our emotions. This has lots and lots of practical consequences, practical applications for our lives. We are to have the mind of Christ. Peter urges us in light of Christ's suffering in the flesh, in light of the gospel, in light of this once and for all death, arm yourself with the same sort of mind, the same way of thinking. Here Peter tells us what we are to do, what we are to do. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Now he wants to shift gears and tell us why. Tell us why. So we're going to spend the rest of our time answering why. We'll have three points of why and and that's going to frame the rest of our time spent in the word this morning. Why? Why do we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good? First, we arm ourselves for this is a way to kill sin. We arm ourselves for this is a way to kill sin. I think we see this in verses one and two. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So as we continue here in chapter four, we begin to see the why of this opening phrase. Why do we arm ourselves with the resolve of Christ to suffer for doing good? Because to suffer in the flesh is to cease from sin. It's to cease from sin. Peter isn't here saying that if you suffer in the flesh, you will be perfect Instead, he's telling us that suffering for doing good, even though it might mean physical or emotional pain, even though it will be tough, it will be difficult, to suffer in this way is a means of grace in the Christian's life. God kills sin through suffering in this way. Verse two says that that Christians are to live out their lives not for the desires of the flesh, but for the will of God. And this can progressively happen more and more due to us arming ourselves with the mind of Christ and engaging in the battle faithfully. We will die to sin and live to Christ. And so these verses tell us that to say, I will suffer in light of the gospel, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, is to make a clean break with sin. In other words, it's to say, I value the reproach of Christ over and against the wealth and treasures of Egypt or anything else. This can only be done through the work of the spirit. This is a spirit wrought sort of thing. And when this happens happens, there's a morally strengthening effect on the believer. We are strengthened in our heart. We are strengthened to obey and honor Christ. And so when this happens, we can actually be people who gain a clearer perspective on the world. We can see sin for what it is. We could see it as leading to death, as leading to slavery, bondage. We could see Christ more clearly as him who is all satisfying, where fullness of joy is, our glorious Savior and Lord. And we will Desire to actually worship him and follow him in his ways. We are able. <clears throat> you can see, I think, how this would probably have a cyclical effect on a believer's life or on the believer's life. If we're people who are being strengthened as we go to the Lord, as we submit to suffering for doing good, is the Lord strengthens us in that, I think we'll then be people who are all the more willing to go and submit to unjust suffering, for, uh, to unjust suffering, will submit to doing good even though it might be harmful for us. If we see that the Lord is at work in this way, that he uses this as a way to weed out sin, to, to make us more and more like Christ, then we're just gonna keep doing this over and over again. As I consider these verses, I can't help but rejoice Uh, that, that I belong to this community here at Grace. I can't help but rejoice in that. There's so much evidence that Grace is a community of believers where this thing is happening regularly. I really believe that about this group of people. This sort of thing is happening regularly. You are a people who I think have largely armed yourselves with the mind of Christ to submit to suffering for good, even though it might be, or submit to uh, doing good, even though it might lead to suffering rather than doing evil. There's all sorts of evidence for this. I think uh, Project Hope is a great example of this. Project Hope is a place where people take children into their homes through the foster system or through adoption, even though this is a hard and difficult thing. They're not signing up for an easier life by submitting to the various things that people do at Project Hope. Nevertheless, they recognize that to arm themselves with the mind of Christ and to suffer in this way is better than to commit evil. It's better than to allow children to to go on not being cared for in the context of a family. Some of you have cared for elderly parents or grandparents or grandchildren. Many of you have obediently and gloriously confessed sin. You have given uh, generously to the kingdom. You have done things that require an amount of suffering. And in the midst of this, you have been strengthened. You've grown in your faith. So many of you could stand and testify to the glorious reality that God has worked in strengthening you through suffering. This sort of suffering. And so, to you who have armed yourself with the mind of Christ in this way, I would say, continue, excel still more. We can certainly grow in this. Even though I think this is something that that largely characterizes this body, we can continue to grow. There's room to grow. And if you're a person who this doesn't characterize, if this is not talking about you, then I would so urge you to talk to the people around you. Learn the stories of grace. I've been so blessed to hear enough stories over the course of time that I know that there are countless testimonies amongst you where we can be affirmed and encouraged in these things. We can really truly realize that God's word is true here and that it is truly better to suffer for doing good than to submit to evil. And so talk with one another, share testimonies, be encouraged, be built up. And so as you are inevitably tasked with the choice to suffer for doing good or to do evil, choose the good. Choose the good. Choose to arm yourselves with the resolve of Christ. For in doing so, you are saying that Christ is better than sin and you will be strengthened. So why do we arm ourselves with the resolve of Christ to suffer for doing good? Because by suffering in this way, we put sin to death. We make a clean break with sin and we live to Christ. And so this point especially or becomes especially important and helpful as we move on to the next why our next point why do we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ number 2 we arm ourselves for we have sinned enough we arm ourselves in this way for we have sinned enough we see this in verse 3 for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So here we see why our previous point is so important. Why must we die to sin? Why is arming ourselves so important? Because we have already sinned enough. The time is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. Gentiles here does not refer to non-Jewish folk. It's referring to non-Christians, those who have not believed in Jesus, who have not been saved by grace through faith. And what characterizes these Gentiles or these non-Christians? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Sin characterizes these peoples. A lack of faith characterizes these people. But we are not Gentiles if we are in Christ. If we go back to verse one, we see that we are those who are living out of the once for all sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. And what does this mean practically? It means that we are to live out the remaining days of our lives for God's will. In other words, we have lived sufficiently sinful lives. Whether you have sinned in every single way that is listed in verse three, or if the worst sin that you've ever, uh, told, the worst sin that you've ever committed is a white lie, you have sufficiently sinned. Whether you became a Christian yesterday and your entire life has been a life of sin or you became a Christian at three years old, you have sufficiently sinned no matter how much or how little you've sinned, you have sufficiently sinned. You have sinned enough. I find this truth incredibly encouraging and comforting for me because I am like many of you in that I've I've certainly sinned. I'm a wretched sinner in desperate need of God's grace, but I'm not one of those people who is, who has did all the major sins in my life. I don't have uh, a crazy testimony. And so I can sometimes, having not gone there, I can, I can be tempted with that grass is greener mentality and see the appeal of uh, living according to the flesh. But then passages like this come along, and they're so encouraging in, in serving me. Our passage tells us that What so many who have lived sinful, egregiously sinful lives, what they already know, no matter how much or how little you've sinned, it is enough. We do not need an exciting personal testimony in order to know this because Christ is testifying to us in his word. We have the sure word of God that tells us that no matter how little or how much you've sinned, it is enough. There is nothing that needs to be added. We are sufficiently sinful so arm yourselves with the mind of Christ, the resolve of Christ, to suffer for doing good for the time of sinning is past and we are to live to Christ. We're gonna gather together tonight for baptism and what we're gonna see is, is that to be in Christ is to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We are not those who live in the, our old ways that we have died to. No, we have, we have been raised and now we walk according to the, to the spirit. Our last why, our third why, arm yourselves for you will be mocked. Arm yourselves for as Christians, we will be mocked. See this in verses four through six. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that through, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So here once again, we see the result of our break with sin due to arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. When we break with sin, or we put sin to death, this leads to, to others being surprised and they malign us. For Peter's readers, the list of sins in verse 3, these were common sins. Uh, this was what Romans did, and so you did what Romans did. Uh, this, would, this flood of debauchery would have been normal and good to the average person who lived during this time. And so to break from these societal and normal sins would have been surprising. It would have been somewhat shocking and often what would also come with it is scorn, malice, slander, mockery, and on and on it goes. Um, I had a friend who here recently, it came up in a conversation with a co-worker of his that he didn't watch Game of Thrones. And, and the reason he didn't watch Game of Thrones, the TV show, is because... He desired to honor the Lord with his eyes and with his heart and what he brought into his mind and his heart. He didn't want to intake something like Game of Thrones. He sought to honor the Lord with his entertainment intake. And and this coworker was just baffled by this. How could a young man not watch this thing that everybody in our culture loves, this TV show? That just didn't make sense. It didn't compute for this coworker. The coworker was even more surprised to find out that that my friend doesn't even own a TV for the very same reasons. He seeks to honor the Lord so he doesn't even have a TV in his house. It's not to say that you, you can't have a TV, I have a TV. But the point is, is that he desires to honor the Lord with the way he intakes entertainment, with how he uses his time, with how he uses his eyes. And this is baffling to many in our world the idea that we would not watch the most popular tv show that's out there or that we wouldn't even own a tv uh, because we desire to use our time in a way that honors the lord just doesn't make sense it's confusing it invites all sorts of what in the world are you thinking we know that feeling right it's the same sort of feeling when people ask us why in the world will we not live with the person that we want to marry beforehand to check out the account the compatibility there's so many different things uh, that we do as Christians that seem strange to an outside world, and it invites mockery or slander. At best, it invites mockery, a playful mockery. You guys are so weird. But this can oft- often invite outright disdain can often invite outright disdain. For instance, any who stands upon the truth of scripture and says that the practice of homosexuality is a sin risks being labeled a hateful bigot. Any who labels abortion as wrong and murderous is labeled a a woman hater. Anybody who says that racism is a sin and needs to be repented of runs the risk of being labeled a liberal. The list goes on and on and on. There are times in this Christian world where we draw lines in the sand and we say, we are to live to Christ and we will graciously but lovingly speak the truth. And the world at large does not like this. And so it often invites a maligning, a slander, mockery. The, The reality is that no matter how gracious and how loving we desire to be, no matter how carefully we present our views, there's a world out there that will just simply not accept them. As Christians, we will be mocked to some degree. And so Peter desires to prepare us for this. He desires to prepare us. We are to be steadfast in arming ourselves with the mind of Christ for we will be maligned. This judgment is natural for the Christian to endure, but this judgment is not the final word. Verse five tells us that though they judge us for our fidelity to the gospel and to Christ, they will be judged by the ones who who judges the living and the dead. Here, Peter seeks to encourage us, to strengthen us by reminding us that one day we will be vindicated for living in the spirit. According to chapter 2, our job as Christians today is not to be the extenders of justice. We are not to judge the world. We are not to carry out God's justice. Rather, we are to submit ourselves to unjust suffering and live such lives that the gospel might seen and might be believed. We're to present the gospel. We're to present Christ as beautiful and glorious and satisfying and full of joy in the way that we live. That's what we're to do. We're to submit to this sort of unjust suffering, but... Our passage says that, or our passage shows us the consequences of those who see our lives and reject the gospel. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for them. In fact, it's because of this impending judgment that we get verse 6. A strange verse that is notoriously difficult to, to understand. The gospel was preached to those who were now dead who are now dead, that they might believe and live forever in the spirit with God. This isn't saying that people who are now dead get some sort of second chance that the gospel is preached to those people who are dead, that we should go to graveyards and preach the gospel. No, this is saying that those who are dead, while they were alive, they had the gospel preached to them that they might believe in Jesus, that they might repent of their sin and that they they might not receive this judgment that is surely coming. Peter wants us to know though, that in the midst of our battle, that justice will be carried out. It will be carried out. The evil being committed against us, no matter how big or how small, will one day be reckoned with. And because of this, we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And so in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, we see the king speak. The king speaks. He gives us our instruction that we desperately need. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ We are to resolve to suffer for doing good rather than evil. We're instructed in what we are to do. We're told why. But now as we close, I'd like for us to consider how do we do this? How do we do this? The the way I'd like for us to focus on is a key way. And it's simply participating in the body of Christ. Participating in the local church. Do what you're doing right now. Sit under the preached word. Sing songs of worship. Pray with one another. Go to Grace Group and talk about these things with one another. Volunteer at Food Bank. Volunteer at Adventure Week. Do the sorts of things that you do at a gospel-believing, and gospel-proclaiming church. By participating in the body life at a place like Grace, you'll be forced to regularly remember Christ and his gospel. You'll regularly be called to... Hope in the finished work of Christ. Your eyes will be fixed on Christ continually. And as we do this, we will be arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. And so submit to the local church. Be a part of the local church. Live in the body here. Be a part of the body life. One really important and explicit way that this happens at church is through communion. Today, we have the the great joy and privilege of coming to the table Together, We will be taking communion together in just a moment. In communion, we remember and we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. And this is is especially important this morning as we consider our passage, as we consider verse five. Verse five tells us that judgment is coming. There will be a day where we will stand before the one who judges the living and the dead, the one who judges justly. And this is a sobering reality. Justice will one day be served. And we have to recognize as Christians that we are deserving of this judgment. We may not have committed every sin that's listed in verse three, but this is surely representative of us. We are desperately in need of a savior. We we deserve judgment, but Christ stood in our place. Christ experienced the judgment of God that we might experience the peace of God. Christ suffered once for all the righteous for us the unrighteous and so in communion we remember this and we proclaim it and in this we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ One really important note though as we before we approach the table is that this is a meal for believers This is a meal for believers And so this morning, if you are here visiting and you do not know Christ, then I wanna warn you that this is a meal for believers. The scriptures say to, to eat of the bread and drink of the cup and to not know Christ is to drink condemnation upon yourself. And so please recognize that this is a meal for believers and so we'd ask that rather than coming and taking of the cup and the bread, that you would use this as a time to consider what you've heard this morning, to consider the gospel The reality is, is that we are in desperate need of a savior. Every single one of us. Judgment is coming. And so I urge you, please consider Christ. Recognize your sin and recognize you have a great savior in Jesus. Believe in him today. I can think of nothing better than for you to believe in Jesus and for your very first public act of faith faith to come and take communion with the rest of us here this morning. And so... Take some time. This isn't going to be a, a two minute deal. Take some time, consider, pray and, and see what the spirit might be doing in your heart. For everybody else, I, I want to urge you to just take a moment, uh, consider the things that we've heard today. Consider Christ, the one whose eyes we are fixing, uh, who we are fixing our eyes upon. Uh, consider arming yourself with the mind of Christ and then when you're ready, you can come and take communion. I want to invite uh, the servers to go ahead and come forward. They're going to uh, grab. They're going to grab the, the bread and the cup and be stationed at various places throughout the room. We'll have uh, a station on my far right for anybody who has food allergies. So if you have food allergies, you might head over to that side of the room. Uh, if you would come when you're ready, and our servers will, uh, you could tear a piece of bread off, and our servers will say, "Christ's body given for you," and then dip it in the cup. Christ's blood shed for you, uh, and so this will be how we'll spend the last 10 minutes or so of our time. Let's pray. Father, we praise your holy name. We thank you that we have the opportunity to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ this morning by hearing your word, by being in fellowship with one another, by remembering and proclaiming your death until you return by taking communion. Lord, would you overwhelm us with your gospel this morning? Would you strengthen us, Lord? Would you resolve in our hearts that we might be the sort of people who uh, have the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good rather than evil? Lord, help us. This is a hard command, a hard uh, instruction. And so, Lord, would you help us by your spirit to live in light of your gospel? Would you help us to be obedient in this world? Well, we rejoice that we have this opportunity. We rejoice that we can do it together. Uh, would you be honored and blessed here amongst us? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.